Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. So I'm going to do something I don't usually do for a podcast episode. So just to let you guys in on kind of how I've been running this show, (laughs) as it were, for the past uh, two years now. So I have a list of topics and you guys write in topics and questions and I get those and I think about them for about two weeks. And in that course of two weeks, I take what I'm reading and I look up stuff on the internet I look up stuff on the bookshelf I have behind me, uh, full of books that I've acquired over the years of volunteering and working at a church, um, as well as, I mean, just college and the general engineering experience that I'm in. And I research and I read and I put together thoughts and I kind of put together an outline of a show in my head. I never really write anything down. And then I record and I talk and I try to just have a conversation like like one of you is just sitting across from me at a table here and today I'm not going to do that. You see, I've been reading and as some of you know and I think I've mentioned this on the show before, I'm I'm in school again getting a master's degree in systems engineering and so with that I've been in a fall uh, season of classes that are a little bit more demanding on my time. That's also probably why you haven't seen a bunch of episodes this fall. And so I haven't wanted to spend my free time researching as much as I've wanted to spend my free time simply just reading and enjoying books. And so when I travel for work, I've picked up the Lord of the Rings trilogy and The Hobbit kind of as my in-the-airport pleasure travel reading. On my day-to-day, I have picked up The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky, which I've never read before and I've been diving into, and I think that's what's going to be driving a lot of today's theme and what I want to talk about. And then, of course, I, you know, have a whole collection of C.S. Lewis books that I uh, very lovingly turn to as kind of just, I have an hour, let me read something (laughs) kind of material. And so in thinking of a lot of stuff, and also to preface this, I'm recording this episode literally less than an hour after having a conversation with a professor uh, talking about the great resignation that we've experienced here in America, talking about the way people are treating work and how they live and this work-life balance thing and remote work and in-person work and all these different things. And and this professor said something that I'm probably going to remember for a long while now because it's, I feel like it's a, a good insight. She said that the great resignation is turning people into consumers of work rather than being consumed by work. And I thought that was such a a crazy statement, especially for those of you that live in America or or a more westernized civilization that, man, that's so true. But neither of those is a good thing, right? To to be consumed by your work, to to live your life with work being the the thing that that gives you the most meaning and, and fills your tank with the most joy is a horrible, horrible life. And and it really is because your work is so temporary, right? And you're going to work for 20, 30, 40, 50, even some years. You might even build a business, but then you're going to die and someone's going to come after you. And Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes, so this isn't anything new. 
but you're going to die and someone's going to come after you and they're not going to value it the same way you are. And they're not even going to give you credit for what you've done. So it's a very futile endeavor and full of vanity, to quote Ecclesiastes, right? But then to be a consumer of work, to hop around in, you know, two or three different jobs in the past two or three years, just seeking who's going to pay you more, just seeking who's going to give you the better benefits and not actually putting value to your work and not actually building relationships while you accomplish tasks and and valuing the people you work with as a community and, and valuing the work that you're there to do as a calling, well, that's that's harmful as well. Because then all that says is I'm greedy and I want more money, right? And okay, no, that's not all that that says. And I don't want to get into a conversation about work. But it got me thinking, right, that neither being consumed nor a consumer is a proper way to treat work, right? That there's something where you have to look at it and say, God has placed me here, right? You have to look at it and say, there's a reason why I'm here. And there's a reason I'm in the the lives of the people whose lives I'm in. And that has something to do with community and calling. But it's not obvious. It's not evident. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about as I opened GarageBand to record and pulled out the microphone is... Why is so much in life not obvious and not evident? So, okay, other examples here, right? As I mentioned, I've been reading The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky, and my goodness, I recommend this book. I am a little more than halfway through it right now. It is incredibly long, but incredibly deep. I've had to go back over chapters and just let them sink in for a day or two and just really think about the words that Dostoevsky penned some 200 years ago, almost 200 years ago, whatever, and just, like, I don't know, just, like, marvel at it, you know? And so, spoiler alert, you've had a long time to read this book, like I said, almost 200 years. Um, so if you haven't read it, go read it. And I won't spoil everything, but there's there's, there's so much. And so there's a, there's a climax point in the second part of the book. The book's broken up into four parts, 12 different books, each of those 12 books having like 15 or 16 chapters in them, um, some more, some less, obviously. And there's this climax uh, called Rebellion, the, the chapter called Rebellion, followed by a chapter called The Grand Inquisitor in the second part of the book. And that's, so, so the book is about these three brothers, and two of the brothers in, in particular have a conversational meeting, I guess, if you want to call it that, in this climax, where Ivan the atheist brother, and Alyosha, the priest, and, and all, all these brothers come from this father who's like this horrible, horrible man, and just completely disgusting and despicable, just a, a fleshly monster given into hedonism. And so there's this conversation then where, where Ivan and Alyosha are in a cafe, and in Rebellion, this chapter, Ivan is posing all of these questions to Alyosha, and he's bringing up all these horrible examples of children being beaten and abused and neglected and just in some of the worst living conditions and 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 he brings up oh there's a little boy who was abused this way and there's a little girl who was abused this way and and he says to Alyosha I can't believe in your god that this little girl is crying out to the day before her her father's about to beat her to death she's crying out to your god of love and he's not there and it's like and, and so he goes you know three or four examples deep on this and he says your god of love lets children die and then he goes to this chapter called the Grand Inquisitor, which is of a, of a fictional parable of a pope in the in the Inquisition in the 1500s who meets Jesus and 
And he asked Jesus these, these hard questions of why, why did you not give in to the temptation of the devil? Why did you not turn the stone into bread? Because you, you, you could have made bread and that's all that man wants is bread. Why did you not cast yourself off and let the angels catch you and give man a miracle so we would know, we would see heaven come down, see spirituality, and man wouldn't have to think so hard and wonder so hard and have faith that seems so blind. And then he says to Jesus, the Grand Inquisitor does, why did you not fall and worship the devil? Because you could have united all men instead of dividing them by only telling them that, that you're the only way. And in the end, the parable shows the evils of communism is, is what really Fyodor Dostoevsky is getting at because he writes this in the 1800s in Russia as communism's rising. And Dostoevsky himself was sentenced to a Siberian labor camp for 10 years. And so he's not, he's not writing from, from a... a abject, abstract place. He's writing from experience, and it's deep, and it's, it's wonderful, and you should read that, and I'm not doing it any justice here, but, but it makes me think, why don't we see the whole picture? And just a few chapters prior to that conversation, Alyosha, the priest, is walking through a town, and a little boy bites his finger uh, to the point that he draws blood, and, and he breaks the skin down to the bone, and then he runs off, and Alyosha has a run-in later on with the little boy's father, and the little boy's father says, don't you want me to beat him? And Alyosha says, no, I want you to forgive him. And he's able, after he says that, to piece together this, this event that happened years prior where the little boy watched Alyosha's other brother, Dimitri, beat his father, the little boy's father, publicly in like an open square. And so the little boy recognized Alyosha's face as a Karamazov, and he bit Alyosha's finger out of love for his father. And it's like, Man, if Alyosha would have just said, give me what I think is justice right here, right now, beat this little boy because he bit my finger all the way down to the bone. Well, that wouldn't have been true justice because Alyosha didn't have the proper story. He didn't have the full story at that time. And then, and I haven't read this book in maybe a year or two, but it got me thinking about The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And it got me thinking... There's this chapter where, so, so The Great Divorce, again, if you haven't read that one, you should read it. It's a, it's a parable about a bus that goes from hell to heaven every day. And, and one day this man gets on and he goes from hell to heaven and he makes observations of these people from hell. They're called ghosts encountering heaven. And in heaven, there's real people, right? And so the ghosts are walking around in heaven for the day and they, they walk through the grass and the grass blades pierce their feet and they, they can't feel it. They can't taste it. And, and the real people are trying to get the ghosts to, to experience heaven. They're trying to get them to lay down their pride and worship Jesus at the end. And some do and some don't. And when they do, they turn into real people and they, and they get to stay there. And again, spoiler alert, but like this book is also like 60 years old, so you, you've had time. Um, but at the end, right, it's, it's, there's C.S. Lewis does some like crazy Inception stuff. And he's like, it's a dream. It's a vision. This is, this is about how people live their lives on earth. And there's this chapter of this, this mother who, who goes to heaven and a man greets her and the man's not her son. And she's just looking for her son, longing for her son. Her son's name is Michael. It's chapter 11 of the book. You should read it. It's really good. And, and she keeps asking for Michael. Where's Michael? To, why isn't he here to greet me? I loved him so much on earth. I gave him everything. I made sure you know no harm ever came to him. And the real person that greets her in heaven, this, this ghost, he's, he's able to draw out of her that she worshipped being a mother and she loved her son so much she would hate God for her son. And, and, and he's able to do that because there's this point in the chapter where she gets angry 
at a God who wouldn't send her son to hell with her, right? All she wanted was to be with her son for all of eternity, even to the point of dragging her son's soul down to hell. And he's like, see, you don't love your son. You just love you. You love being a mother and the feeling it gives to you. And it's like mind blowing because it's like, man, you don't have the whole picture, right? (laughs) Maybe she was a helicopter parent on earth. And, you know, that has its own things where it's probably psychologically damaging and wrong in and of itself. But it's like one of those things where, is that really someone's worst sin? Is that they love being a mother more than they love God? And Christianity's, it doesn't care about your feelings. It doesn't care if you think that, that, that doesn't seem like a sin. It says it is a sin. If you love anything more than God, Jesus said, if you hate father, mother, brother, and sister for my name's sake, that's how you know you're saved. Like Jesus says, you don't love me unless you love me enough to hate everyone close to you so much that you love me. And of course, he was speaking to a Jewish audience. And if, if you read throughout the Bible, there's this, this kind of Jewish parallelism that's present, and it's contrasting ideas is what it is. It's rhyming ideas, right? So where we rhyme words in English, the Jews rhyme ideas or contrast ideas. And so there's this idea that there can be a love so deep that it hates everything else, right? Not to say that you actually go around and hate people, but it's that one love is so deep that every other love compared to it almost doesn't even look like love, almost looks like love's opposite, which is hate. And this person in heaven is able to draw it out of this ghostly mother in C.S. Lewis's story that she loves being a mother so much that any affection she has towards God is so opposite that it could even be compared to hate. And it's like, that's powerful. And that chapter comes just a couple chapters after the narrator of this story, the one experiencing this bus ride from hell to heaven, encounters another ghost, again, another old woman who was murdered. And it's like... (laughs) She's a victim. That's not easy. Why is she a ghost? Why is she not in heaven? And she's walking around grumbling and complaining about all of her friends that went to heaven. And she's walking around grumbling and complaining about how she's the victim and how she was murdered and that life's unfair. And it gets to the point she says, God is unfair. And, and, and the narrator says, I'm troubled about this. He says, because that unhappy creature, and I'm quoting now, doesn't seem to me to be the sort of soul that ought to be even in danger of damnation. She isn't wicked. She's only silly. A garrulous old woman who has got into the habit of grumbling and feels that a little kindness and rest and change would do her all right. And then the angel guiding him around says, that is what she once was. That may be what she still is. If so, she certainly will be cured. But the whole question is whether she is now a grumbler. And they go on in a little bit of a dialogue, and he gets to the point where he's teaching the narrator. He says, the whole difficulty of understanding hell is that the thing to be understood is so nearly nothing. But you'll have experiences. It begins with a grumbling mood. And yourself, still distinct from it, perhaps even criticizing it, and yourself in a dark hour, may will that mood and embrace it. Ye can repent and come out of it again. But there may come a day when you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. And they go on walking through heaven. And he goes on observing ghosts. And he goes on observing people. And there's, there's shock, there's dismay to the kind of people that end up in heaven as much as hell. 
he bumps into a, a, a professor, an ardent atheist professor who spent his life hating God only one day to be worn down by his Christian friend and, and end up in heaven, end up a real person while mothers and, and good businessmen and, and silly old ladies are not. They're the ghosts. And again, he wakes up and it's this inception thing, right? And, and the whole point is there are little actions we take every day. There are little habits that we get into that other people don't see. And there's little habits that other people are into that, that we don't see. And, and he, he has, C.S. Lewis has this idea that it's those habits and those small interactions that are propelling us on a trajectory towards one destination or the other. And I have, I've quoted this before on this podcast, right? But he says that there are no mortal people. You've never met an ordinary person. Everyone is on, on a journey that at the end of it, they'll either be a creature so beautiful you'd be strongly tempted to worship now or a creature so hideous that you would only encounter now, if at all, in a nightmare. And that each interaction we have with each other pushes us into one of those two directions. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. That's what C.S. Lewis says. And so why don't we understand all of this now? Why, why is this so hidden and requires such great thought, requires such great freedom, that we have to strive to pursue the knowledge of good and evil, as the Grand Inquisitor said in The Brothers Karamazov? Why are we free to wonder? You know? Like... Why do we, as Paul said, see now only through a dim glass and have to wait until death to finally see in full? Part of it is we haven't been around for eternity. Part of it is we only live in subjectivity and we can't see the objective. I don't know that it's a test. Maybe it is. I don't think it is. I think that the chasm has split open now. Ever since man ate of the fruit of the tree of that garden that we weren't supposed to eat of, there's a chasm between reality that is and reality that should be the reality that we've come to accept and know and the reality that we all long for and that's another central theme of the lord of the rings of the brothers karamazov of heaven of hell is justice that something needs to make everything right and this of course comes in in the light of the season that we're heading into We are already in the Advent season. Christmas, as I record and release this episode on the same day, also something I like never do, is a a week away. And we're going to be around family. We're going to be around friends that we don't agree with theologically, philosophically, maybe politically. Maybe you agree with everyone politically. I don't know. Maybe you hate politics. (laughs) The necessary evil that it is. But you don't have the full picture. And I don't have the full picture. And Man, I just, I just contrast Alyosha and the grumbling old lady of C.S. Lewis's story, right? Alyosha, the priest, and the brothers Karamazov, who, who holds back his version of justice. And, and, and even, even to go deeper on that, there's this, Alyosha is trained by this, this monk, Father Susima, and he's a beloved monk in the town. Everyone wants to, to see him, to have him pray for him. Um, you know, no fault is found in him. And then he dies, and the corrupt monks in the monastery point out all these faults and these flaws, and there's this incident that happens where his body decays at, at, at an insanely rapid rate, and, and they're thinking that's a sign from God that he was corrupt somehow, and then no one sees the goodness in him anymore except for Alyosha and, and a couple other monks that are bonded together by, by this love that they all shared. And it's like the whole world is quick to condemn a righteous man. 
And Alyosha's tender heart reflects on a conversation he had with this righteous man where, where Father Zosima says to Alyosha, God's going to call you out of this monastery. God's going to call you into the world. You're going to take a wife. You're going to gonna wrestle theologically with your brothers. You're going to go into the town, and that's where God wants you, out of the monastery. And so Alyosha's moving forward, the, the, the new, timid, hopeful hero of this story, as the world judges the righteous man. And he holds back his judgment. He holds back his judgment of the little kid that bites his finger. He tells the father, don't beat him. He holds back his judgment of the rest of the world who's so quick to condemn his hero, his mentor, the monk he sat under as his ideal, as his adopted father for his real father was so corrupt and despicable and disgusting. And he holds back the judgment and he doesn't grumble. And he, he, he goes out and he, he serves. He serves the the wicked people in his village that are very loaded down with sins. If you if you re- have ever read the book or if you read the book, let me caution you. Dostoevsky does does not hold back <laughs> any any descriptions of the evils that are in this town. It's not for the faint of heart. But Alyosha doesn't grumble like the woman in C.S. Lewis's fictional tale. She grumbles. And out of that grumbling mood grows hell. And I just, I don't think I want to be a grumbler. It's like that's... That's the smallest, most minuscule action that reflects opposition to love. And the church is full of it. And Christianity is full of it. And why? Well, it might be because we see through that glass dimly. And that's a scary thought. That there's a God out there. And you might be half wrong about him. I might be half wrong about him. And we're betting eternity on that. And it's like, I mean, you have to. Because you have to make a conclusion, even though you see dimly, that's no excuse for not making a conclusion about life. And we've talked about this before, that faith is the conclusion. It's, it's the, you build a knowledge, a base of knowledge that you stand on, and there's a bunch of unknown, but you have to leap from what you know over what you don't know to a conclusion, and that's faith. And you want to make the smallest leap possible, but it's still a chasm. Look, the fruit of the, uh, in the garden of the knowledge of good and evil opened a chasm too wide for us to actually fully jump across and get to the other side where we know beyond good and evil, as Frederick Nietzsche put it. But that is the Christian idea, that before the garden, we were, we were in this, or before the fall of the garden, we were in this place where we knew beyond good and evil, that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day, and to walk with God is to know beyond good and evil. When the Bible says their eyes were open, it doesn't mean that they knew more. What it means is they jumped from a positive freedom to a negative freedom. They were free for God prior to the fall. And then in the fall, when their eyes were opened, they were opened to be free from God. And that's the great curse of freedom that the Grand Inquisitor talks about in the Brothers Karamazov. But the cure for it isn't religious enslavement, isn't dogmatic judgment and adherence to some religious rule it's something like the cure is to love God and love others. And that's impossible. But I think it becomes possible when you hold back grumbling. It's something like that's the first step is to not grumble. And I think in order to not grumble, there's, there's two aspects there. Number one, you have to realize you don't know the whole picture. And, and, and number two, and this is definitely a topic for another day because we are out of time, the Holy Spirit needs to give you the power not to grumble. And with that, we are out of time. I've probably gone over at this point. Let me know what you think. This was a little bit different of an episode. I kind of just sat down with a glass of lemonade and just spouted off. Uh, If you hate it, let me know. If you love it, let me know. If you're indifferent to it, I guess don't let me know. 
But as always, thank you so much for listening, and I do hope you enjoyed this show. <laughs>